1: That's stamps.com. Code program.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like fridges, humps, and get this straight lines. Mm,
3: Oh, I love that. Or drains rains and stains pains <laughs> cranes and chillblains in other words sam it's all about the history of coldness and if you will indulge me just a little since we're in <laughs> lockdown this reminds me of a lovely little passage in wind in the willows which as those of you who listen to our christmas time podcasts will know is part of my reading my annual reading around Christmas. And there's an extract in it where the water rat and the mole return to Mole's burrow to find nothing in. And the rat hunts around the place to assemble a small feast. And then they hear carol singers knocking on the door. And it's the field mice. And there's a little bit where it says, where rat sort of gets them all organised and sends some of them off to Buggins' store to come back with all sorts of things. And then it goes, the rest of the field mice perched in a row on the settle, their small legs swinging, gave themselves up to the enjoyment of the fire and toasted their chillblains till they tingled. I'm sorry, that was so indulgent. However, back on track now, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of clouds is in fact all about navigation lazy Sunday afternoons, cholera and World War One or that the history of unfairness and you will all learn about this in due course is in fact all about the Chartists and that's one of our next homeschooling episodes that we're going to be recording very very soon.
2: And and that the history of posture How, is everyone sitting down? Are you standing <laughs> up? Are you reclining? Uh, that's all about the Roman social order. <laughs> there you go. Um, so out of all, James, that very lengthy but wonderful introduction. I want to do the history of straight lines and stains. Oh, uh, can we yes. do can we do stains next? That's brilliant. Do you mean
3: stains? Um, uh, sta- <laughs> stains uh, where leg comes from, or do you uh, mean? No. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> no, you mean other kind, of, right? Like the stains of um.
2: Uh, of of Bill Clinton, are you thinking about that? We can do the stains of Bill Clinton yes. or the stains Excellent. of Nelson. E- yes. yes, either way. Uh, mm. Ladies and gentlemen, the man not sitting opposite me, because we're the uh, other side of town at the moment. Let's just say that if history was facial hair, he would be its handlebar moustache. It is <laughs> Professor extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. How are you doing? Really well, thank you. Excellent. And the man not sitting
3: opposite me, because he's across town in lockdown, is the ZZ Top of the history (laughs) world. So luxuriant is his facial hair. Well... To be honest, I don't know because I haven't seen you for ages. We're not using cameras, so I have no idea. In fact, you're completely the opposite of the wild and shaggy ZZ boys. Your beard is normally groomed within an inch of its life. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, as there's a theme here. We digress. It is, of course, the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis.
2: Well, hello, everyone. Um, Hopefully you've worked it out. We are doing the history of beards today, and it's part of our... Um, a corona-inspired series. We've done the history of a variety of things which are kind of in the news or generally around and about the world nowadays more than they were before. So we have done the history of applause because everyone was clapping for the NHS. We've done the history of balconies for everyone doing the amazing things they were doing on their balconies. Um, And this is part of it because we are doing... Oh, we've done rainbows, haven't we, for the NHS. We... um, This is the history of beards because uh, I do, I haven't seen James in person for some time. I do happen to know that he's grown, like many, many people out there in the country, a fairly spectacular beard. In fact, I shall dedicate this episode to my dad, who's grown an (laughs) absolute cracker.
3: (laughs) I have, I have actually shaved my beard off now. I was getting so upset looking at myself uh, in Zoom meetings. Uh, Uh, I didn't switch myself off and it was getting so itchy and I just felt I was fondling it all the time. And also it was peculiarly grey. I have barely a grey hair on my head, little around the temples. But this was it it was almost predominantly grey and blonde and ginger. Um, So Mm. I found it sort of slightly, well, slightly vaguely offensive. Um, And I, you know, and I and I and I refused. I'm glad I did it um and now i'm i'm never going to do it again um no you found
2: yourself offensive yeah i i uh, regularly
3: find myself offensive yeah. particularly when looking in the the mirror that is a zoom camera this is also inspired by i say inspired we also wrote a chapter on beards for our brilliant book histories of the unexpected how everything has a history and of course if you are bored and casting around l- After exciting books to read during lockdown, Uh, I can recommend you nothing better uh, than (laughs) Histories of the Unexpected uh, available on our website, Uh, signed, I think. Isn't that true, Sam?
2: It is absolutely true, absolutely true. So, um, beards, let's... um, I mean, revulsion of beards is an interesting place to start because my dad loves his beard. I love my dad's beard. My mum is repulsed by him now, (laughs) which is a
3: bit of a problem. Yeah, Um, I mean, I I think, yeah, uh, beards are... Beards are odd, aren't they? Um, <laughs> I, I've, I, some people look really good with beards and, and you know, they're a sort of real sort of hipsters. They're also those people um, who grow the most outlandish, artistic, spectacular beards. You, know, you talked about the handlebar moustache, but I did a bit of Googling today while I was trying to find a suitably funny um, uh, little snippet for my description of you and i googled the world's greatest beards and if you do that put that into google you come up with the most spectacular things people who've grown the olympic rings out of their beards it's phenomenal absolutely phenomenal wow.
2: yeah so um i mean beards in history then how do we go about thinking about this and, and applying it to the past well
3: i was i was this was actually one of the most enjoyable chapters that i read for for our book and i particularly enjoyed the work of a brilliant socio-cultural historian. I don't know how he'd how he'd um, describe himself, but a, a guy called Alan Withy, who's a postdoctoral uh, researcher at the University of Exeter. He's a BBC New Generation Thinker, and he has a he has a real thing about the history of beards. And for him, he's coming at it from all sorts of ways. So he works on the history of medicine. So it's about medical humanities. It's about the beard and surgery. It's about the beard as a window for looking at medical advances for looking at social and cultural norms it's about the beard and masculinity so the beard then like a lot of our topics becomes this sort of lens for looking at all sorts of things but i'll tell you i was reading through our chapter again and i thought it might be uh, it might be a good thing just to read out our introduction because i was very proud of it love them <laughs> or hate them beards have a long and fascinating history one that has seen them grow in and out of fashion at different times, in different locations, and always for different reasons. We, that you and me, are split on the beard front. Sam is an her suit pogonophile. Yes, there is a word for loving beards, just as there is a word for fearing them. Pognophobia while James is generally baby smooth, at least when he could be bothered to shave the designer's stubble. Our choices are probably based on laziness, exhaustion, vanity, hipster fashion trends and peer pressure. The wearing or not wearing of beards is nowadays a throwaway thing. In the past, however, the motivation for wearing a beard could be very different indeed and was often linked to significant historical events, which makes the beard unexpectedly interesting and seriously culturally important for those who study the past. And we can take it in all kinds of directions. We can have a look at how fashions of beard wearing and not beard wearing changed across history. We can link it to military conventions. We can think about soldiers wearing beards at particular periods and not. We can link it to religion and the Reformation. We can link it to medical anxieties around beards. We can link it to the Industrial Revolution and dust, which is in fact how we end the chapter. Um, So there are all sorts of ways of, of starting to think about it.
1: That's stamps. dot com. Code program.
2: Yes. Um. Brilliant. i i really as enjoyed. As always. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. As always. I've. I've um. My immediate thoughts were coloured beards, which I I wrote a little about, Mm. because my dad used to tell me stories about blackbeard. And when he got a bit more imaginative, he talked about redbeard and bluebeard as well. And anyway, all of these people are actual historical characters, and they are known either for the colour of their beard or the colour of their beard was somehow significant. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on. But what's absolutely fascinating about this whole thing is that if you think about blackbeard, bluebeard and redbeard... It, it all kind of becomes really important around the 1690s. Um, and, and it's something I only just noticed today, actually. Mm. Uh, but to start off, talking about this period. So we're basically, I'm going to basically be talking about the 1690s. Um, and I thought I'd start by talking about Peter the Great, mm. the Tsar of Russia, who was a, a fascinating person and um, fairly wild in his tastes. Um, a fairly extreme person. Now, in the 1690s, he became obsessed with wanting to progress Russia. He wanted Russia to be as modern as France, as Britain. He went on a tour. He went on a classic European tour. And he uh, spent some time in London. He actually stayed in the house of John Evelyn, Uh, the famous diarist, and he um, absolutely destroyed the house as well. We know all about it because the the accounts for trying to mend the house after Peter the Great had had his incredible parties there still survive. Um, One of the things that he took home with him to Russia, having been in England, having studied architecture, having looked at the arts, having principally wanting to become a naval superpower as well. He took a great deal of interest in the British dockyards and he went back and he helped establish uh, the Russian Navy, which went on to become a very significant power. One of the things that he took home was that there were very, very few, if any, people in power or real movers and shakers, the people who lead society, who were really notable in their achievements, almost none of them had beards. And what that meant is that Peter went back and one of the ways of immediately changing his society, at least visually, and immediately bringing his society in line with the Westerners as he saw it, was to enforce the uh, leading members of his court to shave Um, And this is a little little extract from uh, The Life of Peter the Great, published uh, around 1730. The Tsar ordered that gentlemen, merchants and other subjects except priests and peasants should each pay a tax of 100 rubles a year if they wanted to keep their beards. The commoners had to pay just one kopeck each. And for the young men, they followed the new custom with much readiness as it made them appear more agreeable to the fair sex. And in fact, some tokens actually exist from this period, like a wonderful archaeological link to this, which are inscribed with the words, beards are a ridiculous ornament. Um, and these tokens were actually given out as a receipt to those men who'd paid the Tsar's tax. So even if you pay the tax, you get this token saying that you've paid the tax, but the beard was actually ridiculous. So in this sense, you've got an extraordinary tax on beard where beards become very undesirable indeed. And it's all to do with Peter the Great wanting his country to look like physically, to look like the British. Amazing. That's fac-
3: absolutely fascinating. Uh, I love Peter the Great. He's one of my favourite characters. Can you talk about a character in history, one of my favourite historical figures. But this idea of, of, of whether to wear a beard or not, I mean, what I want to talk about now is societies that have both rocked and knocked the beard. And throughout the late 1850s, so we're talking a period uh, that's beyond yours, the beard enjoyed a particularly popular time in the late 1850s. Um, but for the period immediately after when you, you're talking about the 18th century, beards had very much fallen out of fashion within polite Georgian society. Most people would have been clean shaven. And the only people who would have worn beards were either religious men, and I'm gonna talk about beards in the Reformation later on, um, people who were aged, so old old, old men, um, old father time, that kind of thing. Rustics, so they tended to be sort of yokels, the sort of uh, country folk who were farmers who would have them, or or ruffians, you know, so people who, you know, rather like a sort of Bill Sykes character who would sort of have, you know, be sort of unshaven. Um, they were not worn at this period by soldiers, you know, soldiers who represented the British Empire globally. Um, And they were the product of secular Victorian order and authority, vigour and youth, training and temperament. This is what soldiers were supposed to be. And only certain regiments were allowed to grow facial hair and then only allowed to grow moustaches because it was part of their identity. So these kind of handlebar moustaches that you were talking about earlier on are associated with particular groups of soldiers and particular regiments. And members of Napoleon's mounted 10th Regiment of Hussars were, for example, known by their trademark side whiskers and moustaches. And this is a trend that travels across the English Channel to Britain in 1806, when the 10th Light Dragoons were renamed the 10th Royal Hussars, and the regiment started being allowed to sport moustaches and also donning fabulous furs and feathers. Um, These fashions in facial hair were soon followed by other British regiments, including regiments such as the Horse Guards and the Life Guards. And this was something that spread through the military and then passed into society. And in 1854, the British Army decreed that no soldier should shave his top lip following French fashions. And the idea behind it was basically that a mustachioed battle troop uh, would be scary. Um, and, and also it probably made the troops look slightly older. But I suppose there's there a connection between masculinity and and military prowess and facial hair. Now, this this, this sort of donning of the moustache or growing of moustaches was something that was restricted to elite regiments within the army. And the beard, however, was still banned in the British army. And this is how it connects to the Crimean War, because it's the Crimean War... That war that was fought between 1853 and 1856 was what changed everything. And it happened during the Siege of Sevastopol, which is, if my my dates are correct here, uh, is 1854 to 1855. And Lord Raglan, who's the commander of the army in the Crimea, relaxes rules about facial hair and permits the troops to start growing beards. Now, this is partly... In a response to petitions, claims, pleas from the soldiers themselves, and the thing was that you know they're they're out in fighting in terrible conditions, and you know not having to shave sh- saved them time, and also beards in cold weather meant that the soldiers had a sort of certain degree of facial warmth in what what was ultimately a terribly cold climate in the Crimea. So they were allowed to sort of, you know, not shave and start growing facial hair. And on returning to England after the war, these bearded heroes were greeted with a sort of, with jubilation and respect uh, by the public. And the beard, the beard of these soldiers becomes a, a heroic symbol of manhood, which is then adopted by civilians. And so striking is this sight of these returning soldiers, these returning heroes with their facial hair. So striking was it that Queen Victoria, in fact, remarks upon it in her journal uh, for an entry dated the 13th of March, 1856, in which she describes them as the picture of real fighting men. They all had their long beards and were heavily laden with backpacks. And if you have a look at photographs of soldiers from this period, you can see the really luxuriant facial hair that they show. Just do a quick Google and have a look at the Coldstream Guards and and Google that and Crimean War. And what will come up is a picture of three soldiers and officers sporting the most luxuriant crop of facial hair over their chin. I mean, these are real hipster beards. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. So
2: there we are. Uh, it's it's connects to the military and uh, the Crimean War. Yeah, it does. I mean, the military side of it is really interesting. The Amish don't, you know, they grow their beards, but don't, but they shave their moustaches. Um, I do. They, know that. they yes, they do that because the moustache was so associated with the military. And they yeah. uh, they're pac- they're pacifists. So the way of demonstrating their pacifism was to to grow their facial hair in that very distinctive way. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's also a, a link with the First World War here as well, where where so, some it's it's kind of much more complicated. And people think, oh, you weren't allowed to grow beards in the First World War. Um, it depends whether you're in the army or the navy. sailors are always allowed to grow beards, and the s- soldiers were if. And quite a number of them had a facial disfigurement from previous uh, military injuries. So you were allowed to cover it up. So that's really interesting. They they made an allowance for people who were uh, perhaps ashamed of their appearance or certainly sensitive of their appearance. But it all changed when... You've got to think about the war as well and how the Great War changed over time. Well, at the beginning, there was quite a lot of traditional military t- tactics as they were understood in 1914. But then they start using gas. And yeah. so by 1916, it all changes because the one thing you can't do with a beard is get a good seal on your face yeah. with a gas yeah. mask. Yeah. So everyone starts wearing... Uh, sorry, starts shaving and it becomes really, really important to shave their beards. Hmm. Um, I, I would talk recently on our... Um, we did a little interview for the BBC History Magazine's podcast on uh, the unexpected history of the Tudors, uh, hmm. which will be History Extra. You're going to listen to us on History Extra if you want. That'll be coming out soon. And um, I talked a bit about uh, um, piracy in the Tudor period. And I'd become into, I actually written an article on it, um, and I'd been really interested in, in the way that piracy changed. Primarily, we understand piracy as being people like Blackbeard in... Uh, fighting in the Caribbean and in the Indian Ocean. But I wrote this article explaining how actually piracy was was um, all over our shores for centuries, particularly through the Middle Ages um, and up through the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. And then, noticeably, things get much, much, much worse before they get any better. So piracy was endemic. It was a standard thing. But then something <coughs> happens. And um, bear with me for the link to beards, because it's a cracker. So what happens is that in the 17th century, you suddenly get people raiding British shores from the African regencies of Tripoli, Tunis and Algiers. Uh, These are uh, regencies, they're originally part of the Ottoman Empire, but what they've done is successfully uh, fought and won their independence. And they then survived through a mixture of trade, piracy and slaving. And and their economy is primarily um, linked with slaving. So they weren't necessarily stealing goods from other people's ships. They were stealing people and they were taking them back to sell them as slaves. Um, we know that in the 1670s, Algiers in particular operated a particularly ruthless fleet. And it wasn't just Ottoman Turks who were captaining it. Um, there were loads of, of European renegade captains who who worked with this fleet. Anyway, these European renegades know the coast of England, Wales, and Ireland like the back of their hands, and so they uh, whisper to their masters about the gold and the money available up up north. So they sail from Algiers up through the Bay of Biscay onto British, Irish, Cornish, Welsh coasts, and then they capture, where they basically raid coastal villages, they capture women, uh, children, haul them back to Algiers and sell them as slaves. Between 1616 and 1642, some 7,000 English and Irish people were taken in this way. And in one single raid on Penzance alone in 1625, an entire congregation, they raided a church, they took everyone in the church, 60 men, women and children, and they were carted off back to Algiers. And uh, just six years later, 109 people were taken from the coastal village of Baltimore in Ireland. The link with beards is you've got to think about the appearance of the Ottomans. You've got to think about the appearance of the Turks and uh, particularly those who are coming from Algiers. And it all links to the capture of Algiers in 1516. And it was captured by uh, two people and they were both called Barbarossa. (laughs) Which is brilliant. It's so confusing in the historical sources. What you've got is the elder brother, a guy called Baba Orosh, he was known as. And the name of Baba Orosh, it it gradually turned into Barbarossa because it more or less sounds like that. but it certainly sounds like Barbarossa in Italian. And there's a lot of warfare between the Italians and the Ottoman Turks at the time. Anyway, he has a younger brother called Hayreddin. He's also called Barbarossa, who, luckily enough, he actually has got a red beard. And they capture Algiers in 1516. And then they annex it. Uh, it becomes annexed, basically, by the Ottoman Empire. And you have got a very, very distinctive culture that builds up in Algeria and build up around the Ottomans and Ottoman Turks. And one of the most interesting ways of looking at this is to see how it translated sort of via the Europeans. So these Turks, as I said before, there are loads of renegade European captains living there. And there are also a lot of Europeans traveling um, into the the, the Ottoman Empire, primarily via Venice, who they're doing most of their trade with. Which leads me, James, onto a chap um, called Edward Montague. Uh, I've just realised I was at school with a guy called Edward Montague. <laughs> it, it was, the was same it him? person. Are you talking about him? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I am literally talking about him. And... Edward Montague, he's very, uh, a very well-known guy because of a portrait that's painted of him. He's the son of the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. And he's painted in 1775 when he's an, an older man. But he spent most of his life running away from everything. We know he ran away from school. We know he then ran away from his parents. He travelled widely. He lived in the Middle East. He then settled in Venice, this place which is a real culture clash between uh, the, the, the luxury of the East, and, and the enigmatic East and, and Western Traders, and uh, he. If there's, uh, you know, the phrase "turning Turk" or "going native," that was a phrase that became popular um, in the nineteenth century. And if there is a one example of someone who has done this, it is Edward Montagu, and the portrait is is truly, truly fantastic. And what's fascinating about this guy, Edward Montagu, I've just noticed his middle name is Wortley, W O R T L E Y. What a brilliant, brilliant name. He is painted by Matthew William Peters. He painted in 1775 and um, have a look. His, his, his portrait to in the National Portrait Gallery. It's my favourite museum and it's a portrait that I go and see regularly if I'm ever up in London. His beard has been described by someone as writhing. <laughs> it's the only way you can describe the scale of this man's beard. He's covered it in the most wonderful exotic silks uh, from the Ottoman Empire. So here is a European and he has essentially gone native as they described it one of the key distinguishing features is how he's grown his beard to look like an ottoman turk so when thinking about these ottomans raiding uh, raiding the coast of england in the 1690s the best thing to do is to uh, to take a look at this guy's portrait and that will give you a sense of of what they were seen to be like in the eyes of the europeans now um He's the, the
3: he's the husband of Lady Mary Wortley Montagu, uh, the very famous uh. letter writer who has all these uh, Turkish embassy letters uh, that you should all rush out and read.
2: Mm. They're, they're, what, they're, tell me more about them. Where do we know? Where are they? Where are they kept? So they are in. Well, you are able uh,
3: by the uh, endeavours of scholars across the ages to purchase them uh, in a Penguin edition. Um, so they're they're quite a well. She's quite a well known letter writer, and she's constantly writing. She's a, one of the early sort of female travel writers. Um, but it's a woman's perspective on the you know on the sort of you know British British women's oh. perspective of you know the experience of the Ottoman Empire. They're absolutely oh. fascinating. Yeah.
2: Well, anyway, it all links back to Barbarossa, uh, the famous two Barbarossa brothers, and um, one of them had a red beard, at least, and how facial hair became a real thing in the Ottoman Empire and marked them out. So if you saw someone charging at you up the beach in Penzance, you'd learn to run away very, very quickly. Guys, we've been uh, rambling on about beards for some time. It's already half an hour. So I think what we're going to do is stop now and take this up in a second episode called Beards 2. I very much hope you've enjoyed listening to Beards 1. And I hope you've got time to grow a beard, those of you who are capable of doing so, in between Beard 1 and Beard 2 when we release them. Um, Do check us out on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I am at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. You can also check out everything we've got on historiesoftheunexpected.com and if you'd like to help us a simple thing you can do is leave a review on iTunes it really makes a huge difference thank you all so much for listening guys we'll be back with you soon cheerio
3: bye guys